This is the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. In each episode, we spotlight the numerous efforts around the state by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. As harvest comes to a close here in Indiana, our guests on this episode share their experiences with integrating livestock and cropland. They discuss the benefits and challenges of regenerative grazing, as well as the process of getting started. Here's your host, Elise Koning. Hello, and welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast. We're here at the beginning of November, and as I was driving around today here in West Central Indiana, there were a few combines finishing up corn, uh, several semis went past my truck. So harvest is wrapping up here in West Central Indiana, and on the phone today we have Devin and Cameron Churchill. Uh, they're down in Harrison County in Southern Indiana. Devin and Cameron, how is harvest looking in your part of the state? Well, the harvest uh, combine's running everywhere right now. We've shut down a couple of days because of rain. We got two here on our farm where we live. We got two and three tenths inches of rain. That really slowed things down. Um, but uh, combine started running yesterday morning again. I guess it was, and um, people are doing quite well. There's there's um, harvest looking good. Um, I don't know how good really, but um, uh, there's a lot of activity. Combines running everywhere today. Any combine in a field is moving. Good, and you guys needed the rain too, didn't you? Yes, we did. We were. It was very dry. We. Um, it was. Uh, the last two or three months have been pretty hard on us down here. We were just had no rain for some time. Glad to hear that things are going well on that. And also on the line, we have Pete Huff with us. He's up in Wisconsin. How's harvest up there? Yeah, hi there, Elise. Yeah, up here in Wisconsin, uh, similar. Had a little bit of a rain delay uh last week and uh, but then some colder weather has come through and uh firmed things up a little bit so i'd say folks are a little bit behind uh probably about halfway i'd say on corn probably a little further on the soybeans around here um but catching up so similar to the church hills uh pretty pretty much running non-stop this time of year yeah it is a non-stop time of year but soon the crops will be out of the field and sometimes you may drive by a crop field and see livestock being grazed out there uh, my neighbor turns his feeder calves out on his corn stalks each year, and we have another beef producer in the area who um, he plants various cover crops for his cattle. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to explore integrating livestock into cropland. We'll see what that looks like, what the process of doing that is, and how this practice contributes to soil health. So first, I'd be interested in hearing about each of your journeys in agriculture and farming. Let's start with Devin. Devin Churchill, um, he's down in Harrison County. What's your background in farming and what does your operation look like now? Well, my background is uh, I'm the son of a farmer who himself uh, is a multi-generational cattle farmer. We run um, a cow-calf operation on eight different small farms. We have eight distinct herds spread out in different areas uh, uh, across the county um, just by necessity where the farms are located. And, and the fact that we cash rent uh, several of them means that they're diverse and spread out. So we have many soil types um, and pastures. And uh, we have been heading in the direction that we're in now for several years. 
uh, it's my father's herd who's here with me today, and my grandfather who's still with us, Fred Churchill. So he actually owns much of the land that we farm, and my father will tell you more about what we're doing. We uh, what what we do mostly is we just we do rotational grazing, as Devin said. We run um, we have. We have cow calf herds, uh, six herds. We have one one farm where we have first ca- or heifers that we're breeding, and we have one that has uh, feeder calves on it. And then we do a little bit of. Um, we have one farm where we have a cornfield and river bottom. That is where we do the um, fall cover crop seeding and um, turn the cattle in there in the fall to graze the corn stalks and the shucks, and then uh, back in the spring to um, graze uh, whatever cover crop we put on there in the fall. So Cameron, I want to ask you about um, your operation. Your son Devin has joined you in that. And what was that process like of having your son join you in an operation you'd worked on your whole life? Well, it's uh, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me as far as in our farming operation. It has been, um, Devin's come in with a lot of new ideas and it, we have just totally, um, um we changed more in the first three years Devin was farming with me than I had in my whole lifetime of farming. I started farming uh, pretty heavily but as a young teenager in the uh, mid-70s and um, did through high school and through college and, and full-time farmed. And um, But I did by the old way, my grandparents, my, my father, my grandparents, and so on. And Devin came with new ideas that, that uh, he's done a lot of research and um, – it's been wonderful what what has uh, changed for us. It just it's it you wouldn't recognize a farm now versus uh, five six years ago. And I definitely want to hear more about that story. Let's turn to Pete now. What's your work in regenerative agriculture up there in Wisconsin? Well, I think I come at this maybe a little bit different than the Churchills. Um, I'm originally from Indiana, born and raised, and um, I'm married into Wisconsin with my wife uh, up here. Um, but our family uh, stopped farming with my grandfather's generation in northern Indiana, um, so I don't uh, have any active management. Uh, I took a different route and have focused on how to support farms, specifically in the Midwest, um, you know, from the nonprofit sector. And so I work for a nonprofit organization that does work around the Midwest, also around the United States, that really is about supporting farms to find pathways towards different practices that not only improve their bottom line, but also have improvements for the soil and for for water quality and quantity, and then also for the communities in which those farms are based, uh, recognizing that, you know, farmers have been uh, some of the original scientists and some of the original entrepreneurs that have figured out how to make it work. And uh, so my work is really focused on how to support them to bring forth those ideas and get them on more acres and more places around the Midwest, but also throughout the United States. What are some of those projects that you're working on right now with farmers? Well, what brings me to this call, I think predominantly on this this podcast is we've worked on the pasture project for the past 12 years or so, and that's specifically focused in the upper Midwest. Um, I've been on it for the last six years, and the pasture project um, is kind of a collection of things that we do through the my employer, the nonprofit I work for is the Wallace Center. Um, we work really to focus on how do we support well-managed regenerative grazing in the Midwest, recognizing the benefits that can come from that for the soil and for farms and communities. Um, So that can look different depending on where we're working. Uh, In certain places, it means uh, we have a very strong presence on the ground, working with farms and landowners and other groups to 
address some of the bottlenecks to getting more livestock back on the land in a good way. And so that can look at look like helping with technical assistance or cost share dollars or coordination with other you know state and federal agencies to, to help those things move. In other places, we produce research on particular topics. Uh, grazing cover crops is one of those things that we've looked at in terms of what are the, the real benefits and some of the real challenges as well. Uh, and then other places we just advocate. We really work hard to make sure that folks recognize that there's a lot of livestock that does get produced in the Midwest. There's a lot of good folks that are out there that are producing it really, really well, and that those folks could use more support to grow their operations and make sure that those livestock and the product that, that come from them uh, you know, reach more tables and, and more places for more folks, um, not just in the Midwest, but throughout the United States. So we do a little bit of everything, um, but we try to just be in service to the farming community as much as we can. Devin, we mentioned a little bit earlier about some of the new ideas that you had bringing onto the farm. What were some of those ideas and how did you learn about them and why did you want to bring them to your operation? Those are great questions. That's a lot to, to answer, but it really pointedly, it's a broad spec, spectrum. The way I would put it is we had been reading a lot about rotational grazing and the benefits and Cameron actually, my father got into it before I did with the NRCS and their program on cost sharing for fencing supplies. And he ended up going into a four paddock rotational grazing system. And I came in to help on the farm after there were some family health issues. So I was called back. And uh, in doing so, we saw that it wasn't quite good enough. And we wanted to lean heavier into the rotational grazing. So now we move them with a an intensive grazing principle where they're being moved often numerous times a week, every one, two or three days. Um, and it, the research has shown for us that, that it was too advantageous to not try. Um, and to answer your question on some of the other ideas we brought, uh, we, we have tried a, a plethora of things. Some have worked and, and some haven't. Um, we just, we had trouble this year growing sorghum Sudan in our crop ground for cattle to graze, whereas in the past we had great success in grazing sorghum Sudan. Um, we had a, a terrible drought this year, and so we had poor germination in some of our stands, and yet many of our pastures, some of them were the best they've ever been, uh, and drought resilient due to um, our rotational grazing management. Uh, we've changed things like our hay feeders, um, we save a tremendous amount of hay now. Instead of using the old design round bale uh, hay feeders, we use the basket and conical shaped ones. So we're actually setting the round bales in baskets now with a, a, a round bale feeder around it uh, that's made out of galvanized or specifically galvanil steel, uh, and it has a skirt all around it. So we're saving, uh, I believe it was, Arkansas State, it may have been Kansas State that did research on hay savings, and, and we quite, quite frankly just have hardly anything to scrape up and spread come spring uh, compared to the compost that we were collecting, which is another thing we've changed where we're actually feeding the cattle on hay pads now, uh, where we put down a geotextile fabric or what have you and rock on top and line as a dressing. And the cattle are able to be fed in one place, and then we're able to scrape it and clean it and spread the remainings as the 
growing season goes on after winter, uh, whereas in the past we would have had to move everything around the field and we did heavy damage in our pastures with hoof action and where they stood to, to eat the hay. And then on top of that, not only are we protecting more pasture now, but we're able to scrape up all of the compost and spread it. So we've seen a significant increase in organic activity uh, in the soil and uh, other things that we've done. What would you say? Water, been water systems. Our water systems. We'll go ahead about that. We've put in a series of uh, waters on the farms. That, uh, again, there was a lot of help through the, the NRCS equip programs, but we'd like to have a water where a cow has, doesn't have to walk more than 800 feet to get a drink. And that has made a huge difference. Uh, of course, our paddocks are much smaller. Um, so this is uh, this is this been if you get your water systems in your in your cattle pastures, your fence is easy to figure out after that. You, you need to start with your water systems. But if you can't, there's other ways you can do it. We have lanes going to the waters. But ideally, if you can get the equip or NRCS or do it yourself, put in waters where cows might walk more than 800 feet. They're a lot more at ease. They do better. They gain more weight. They uh, can, of course, consume more water. Um, that's the water system and our fencing is the two major things. And then Devin doing the rotational grazing programs. Um, it's just, it's, it's a different world here for us. We've, uh, our hay consumption has gone to, uh, maybe it's a little over a third what it used to be before this. We used to bale 2000 plus bales a year. And now on an average year, 700, 750 bales will get us through the winter. We can graze on good years. We can graze up into February and, um, and just don't have to feed near as much hay. So it's just um, everything is so different. That's a really drastic decrease in the number of hay bales. That's really impressive. Yes, we feel very good about that. Starting this year, we're actually doing um, a, uh, we have a new goal where we're integrating the the crop ground into uh, the, the grazing regimen for the cattle sooner. Whereas before we would wait until we'd harvested the entire crop field, this year we're going to put up a poly wire, uh, a temporary electric fence, where they'll be able to graze directly after harvesting the day of or no later than the day after, and we'll move them along that way. So they'll be out in the fields much sooner uh, to clean up the harvest as opposed to in the past where we had to wait until the last bushel was harvested. So we look forward to capitalizing on them grazing the, the crop ground directly after the harvest sooner than ever before, instead of having to wait some time. We, we had years before where after the, it would rain and we knew that we were the corn would be rotting in the ground uh, in the stalks before the cattle would get on them and be able to utilize what they could. We've also put a, a water in each of those cornfields, which helps too, as far as here in the fall, as far as the uh, uh, the cows, we can split up the uh, the fields in half there and have a water in the center at the edge, but well, it's the center of the field of each one of them, and that makes it a lot more productive uh, for the cows having not go to another field to get water. Yeah, that water being close is really important for good animal health. And I want to turn to Pete now. Uh, we've talked about cattle so far. And I wanted to ask what other types of livestock can be integrated on croplands and what does that process look like for integrating the livestock onto those lands? I think that's a great question. I mean, it's highly variable. It depends on a lot of factors in terms of, you know, the individual. We predominantly have worked with 
uh, folks that are turning out cattle, uh, whether beef herds or dairy herds. But we have seen folks uh, utilizing others, whether it's small ruminants. Um, you know, it just all depends on, you know, some of the infrastructure that is in place. And I'm sure the Churchills, as they mentioned, they know all too well and have mentioned that, you know, setting up temporary infrastructure for fencing and temporary infrastructure for water or semi-permanent or permanent, depending on, you know, the plans for a particular tract over the years, um, you know, that can be one of the larger determinants for the type of herd or flock that might be moving on to uh, some covers. So we predominantly have seen in the work that we have done that most folks are turning cattle out uh, into these uh, onto covers, um, but it does not mean that others can't be done. Um, but I would say the predominant that we've seen is, is typically uh, cattle, simply for that infrastructure reason, is that, that uh, some of setting up some of that perimeter fencing that can make that possible, some of that interior fencing that's temporary and mobile. Um, I think a lot of folks are just much more comfortable with that for cattle. What specific covers are they moving the cattle onto? Well, I think you've heard a few here. Um, the sorghum sedan, uh, that's something that we've, uh, that the Churchill's mentioned as well. Um, we know that there's, um, you know, we, we know that there's a lot of different mixes that are out there um, that folks use for their cover crops. Obviously, cereal rye and oats are quite common, um, but we've seen other folks coming through with uh, other, you know, legumes that are in there. Um, and what we typically turn people to is, you know, there's a lot of really great uh, resources out there for cover crops and particularly those that are set up for helping folks figure out what's needed for grazing and to really maximize that biomass and that forage um, for those herds that are moving through. We often turn folks over to uh, green cover seed. They have a smart mix calculator that's online uh, that we have found very informative. We, we find that they do a really great job and they actually allow folks to uh, determine their overall mix by uh, their many of their goals, essentially what they're trying to accomplish. And one of those can be generation of forage. So we would, you know, often encourage folks to take a look at that green cover smart mix and work with uh, folks such as themselves or others. You know, there's a lot of great resources that are out there in terms of determining your cover crop cocktail. Um, what we have found is that, you know, typically with grazing cover crops, um, experience does matter. Um, and so getting a good establishment uh, of that crop uh, early enough in the season so that you can get some of that uh, biomass up um, to really get some of the forage benefit from that uh, is really quite key. And so working with folks, depending on where they might be, uh, where the season is, what some of their larger goals are, whether it's their land or they're working in a contract or handshake agreement with someone across the fence line uh, to figure out what the right, you know, the right mix might be so they can get it established, get that biomass and that forage up uh, and really create the value that comes from getting animals out onto that forage. So that would be my takeaway is, you know, use those calculators that are online, you know, have the conversations with folks that are around already uh, and, you know, have the conversation between the folks that are putting the cover crop down and the folks that are turning the cattle out or the livestock out and just make sure that that blend is going to be beneficial for those animals. So you used uh, the word value, which I really liked, because that's one thing we always look at whenever we're examining a new system or analyzing new ideas. What's the value of this? Pete, let's start with you. Talk about the value that you've seen in integrating livestock with cropland with the people that you work with. And then um, Pete and Cameron, I'd like to hear as well what value you've seen and what benefits you've seen in this system. 
I'm more than happy to speak just from our broader experience. As I mentioned, the Pasture Project works across the upper Midwest. And so we draw, you know, from projects and work that we do with different partners in different places. So, you know, we have had some experience working on farm, doing on farm trials with um, several farms in Illinois, as well as in Missouri, Iowa, and Minnesota. And we, you know, did multi-year trials where we were you know, setting up controls with no covers uh, and no grazing, you know, ones with just covers, ones with covers and grazing. And we pulled soil samples and forage samples from all that. Um, And so, you know, really leaning on, you know, some of the expertise of those farmers, as well as a shout out to the folks at Practical Farmers of Iowa and a few other organizations that I think have really done great uh, work on this. Um, But what we've seen is that, you know, there is a a noticeable benefit and kind of as we have come to conclude is that if folks are putting out cover crop, if you're not grazing it, if that's an option, you're really leaving money on the table, more or less. Um, The data that we have seen is that from a soil health perspective, we've seen, you know, that uh, microbial biomass increase on covers that are grazed compared to those that are not. And so we know that that, you know, microbial activity is is key and it's a precursor for a lot of things that we want to see in the soil, including carbon storage, um, which we know has water storage potential as well and holds more water. And I know the Churchill's mentioned in terms of uh, drought resistance, uh, flood tolerance, things like that. Uh, Those microbes are are quite helpful in getting there. We've also just seen that, you know, uh, grazing cover crop is going to help offset some of the cost of implementation of those covers. And, you know, looking at some of the data that we uh, helped to generate, you know, uh, we saw forage production, you know, upwards of $123 per acre per year. And when you take the cost out of that, it still leaves quite a, a bit of uh, value per acre. Um, you know, that was particularly for a cow-calf operation in, down in Iowa when we were working with Practical Farmers of Iowa. So we also know that there's a lot of long-term benefits that, you know, beyond that forage value and offsetting the cost of the covers, um, we know that, as I mentioned, you make that soil healthier, um, you're going to see long-term benefits to, you know, offsetting or avoiding soil erosion, uh, loss of fertility, uh, and helping with that water storage. And when we did the math on that, we know that that is a little bit speculative. You know, you can measure the value of forage produced and in gain and all that. But when we looked long-term in terms of you know, saving soil on farms and keeping it from running down culverts, uh, we put that at about $135 per acre per year on the long term. And that doesn't always show up on the balance sheet, but it should. Um, And so, you know, for us, again, the value of grazing covers is there in terms of it helps to improve that soil. It helps to produce that forage in the shoulder seasons that can really help, you know, with overall operation and feed costs. And then we see the long-term benefits and last thing I'll say before, uh, you know, pausing and turn it over to the Churchills for their experiences, we also have seen that this is particularly important for cropland that uh, may be marginal and that there's some places that are maybe down in bottoms or in other areas uh, that really should, you know, they have a harder time holding the soil and flood events or other events. Uh, and so this can be an opportunity to help those acres transition over to well-managed pasture uh, if we can get folks grazing covers on that cropland. It can help to get that perimeter fence put up. It can help to get the experience in place so that year after year, it might turn over to just straight perennial pasture, which might be a better use of that particular cropland if it is marginal and is washing out on a year-to-year basis. So we see a lot of benefit across the board here. So, and if I might add the value and benefits, as you asked about the, first of all, the value, the rate of gain that we experience with our cattle when we integrate them onto our cropland, after the harvest, we see a significant 
increase in the rate of gain as opposed to when they're on our uh, fescue pastures. So, and we're able to pasture them. We're able to top graze these uh, redundant crop fields for 25 to 30 days. And in that time, we're able to rest the rest of our pastures for longer. So that's another benefit besides the rate of gain. We're adding the dung and manure and urea that, as he said before, uh, Mr. Huff, Pete mentioned the the biomass. Um, our microbial biomass at, at testing is bound to be much higher than what it was before, or if it were not um, covered by cattle. On top of that, the hoof action uh, from the livestock themselves uh, for seed ground contact uh, for germination is very beneficial, and it actually enables us to instead of going in there with heavy duty equipment and seeding and drilling. Um, we're able to seed by broadcasting with light duty equipment and use the cattle's hoof action to uh, increase that ground contact for germination. So that's another benefit of utilizing the cattle. And in fact, uh, right after we uh, harvest, in fact, we will go day by day and move the cattle each day as we harvest across more ground and then broadcast with a light duty uh, side by side with a broadcast spreader on the back uh, all over the, the crop field um, and use the cattle to stomp in wheat seed. So that's something that we have not tried before, um, uh, broadcasting wheat seed in our cornfields. Uh, that's going to be a first this year, and we're hoping to have the cattle graze that more than once in the spring before planting. Um, so we look forward to that. And um, would do you have anything to add, Cameron? The only other thing I would say is that uh... – well, two things. One is we don't notice that much soil compaction from the cattle hoofs. We don't see an issue there. I know it used to be years ago people were concerned about that. I don't see it. This is a this is a river bottom we're talking about where we 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 do this. We're also doing um, we're trying to rotate it. Like we will have half of that river bottom in corn one year, and we'll be pasturing the other side of it, and then we alternate it the following year, and that way it uh, that seems to help. Um, that's that's what we're thinking it's going to help that's make right. a difference that's one of our newest ideas where we're actually moving the pasture along we're converting each year a new part of the crop field into pasture just for a year uh, by using cost effective selections and seeding and um, uh, we're doing that in hopes that we're actually going to increase our corn yield uh, so uh, we're hoping that this next year we're going to see the most benefit we have yet and we'll be converting more of our crop fields to pasture than we ever have before while still raising crops on them the very next year. So we're, we're going through a certain, a type of a Python uh, strategy of going along and converting each section uh, to a crop from crop field to a pasture field and then back and forth each year. So Pete mentioned there about water systems. These cornfields do have permanent water systems in them. Uh, we did this three years ago or so, planning on doing this uh, continuously, just alternate them like this. So um, they they have permanent waters that uh, seem to work very good for us. And it's, we, we plan on going with this. You know, we, we don't plan on changing what we're doing. We think this is working well worth um, giving a shot. for any. I think anybody should try it, at least test the waters. You're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative with Harrison County Farmers Devin Churchill and his father Cameron and Pete Huff, co-director of the Wallace Center in Wisconsin. Something that caught my attention as you were talking is you were talking about 
being in the river bottoms. And that can have its uh, challenges on its own of um, just rising waters and things like that. Um, can you describe the kind of landscape that your farm is in and some of the challenges that you have seen by uh, farming in the river bottoms and how you overcame those challenges? Well, our biggest challenge was years ago when we, as I, when I was a kid, my father insisted every year plowing up those river bottoms. And that it was one of the worst things we ever did. He was not one to consider no-till or, or minimum till practices. And finally, one year I said, that's it, we're through. We're not going to be doing this anymore. We're going to start with a no-till planter. It was many years too late. But uh, river bottoms can rise, and uh, you know there could be um, six, eight feet of water over that ground in a matter of hours. So you have to be prepared for that kind of thing. In the early spring before the crops are planted, there's going to be, uh, be some serious flooding. But overall, it's uh, our biggest problem with those bottoms is the the weeds we get from up up north of us that come in there and controlling those in the cornfields. Um, we have some problem with um, uh, wild cucumbers and so on that uh, vines that are really giving us trouble. We've not been able to harvest that bottom yet this year. We had we had a killing frost here on Monday morning, I think it was, and so we're going to start uh, maybe tomorrow getting the combine out to get in there. But we couldn't even get in there, and we sprayed. And we cannot control those wild cucumbers some years. And so um, we've had a, 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 a commercial sprayer a company come in and spray, and it's they're not able to control them. I don't know what we're going to do to change there, but but what is part of the reason we're doing this rotational uh, grazing, it, it helps a little. Uh, plus, we feel it's better for the soil, as Devin said, you know, having more microbes in the soil. Um, we feel like we're going the right direction for us. But a river bottom can be a challenge in more than one way. Pete, what are some of the challenges that you have seen from the farmers that you work with, and what are some of the solutions that they have found that worked really well for their land? That's always a good question. I wanted just to link your question to something that um, the Churchills just mentioned around compaction, because that's often one of the, you know, one of the most common things that folks will will cite as to why they're not interested is that they, you know, believe putting any livestock out on cropland is just going to result in compaction. But I think that the data now speaks for itself. We've we've seen enough data be collected over a longer period of time from the operations that are utilizing um, grazing cover crops. And we found that that's just not true. Is that, you know, comp- I mean, you can always certainly cause compaction with poor management, right? So it, it, it with the right amount of management or the right, you know, the correct management, uh, you can, you can certainly avoid it. So uh, we looked at good education that they, it's more about how those animals are being managed that impacts compaction rather than the animals just impacting compaction overall. And so um, we wanted, we always try to dispel that myth is that, um, you know, if you manage these animals well and you're putting them on at the right time, and you're taking them off at the right time, you can certainly avoid that compaction. In fact, we've seen um, some of the benefits to soil structure that come from grazing cover crops in terms of uh, really opening it up and getting more organic matter down into that soil. And the Churchill's mentioned that as well to some of the microbial activity that they've seen. So that's one thing that I just want to mention there. Um, I think that the other thing that we've seen um, and that, you know, I'm not certainly not an expert on, but it's certainly something that we feel like it's important for me to mention here is, you know, for folks to be really, you know, conscious of herbicide residue uh, that might be on those fields as well, especially, you know, the how that can hold over from year to year. Um, that's certainly product specific and treatment specific, but, you know, that can have an impact on those animals and, and should be really carefully um, you know, assessed and, and working with the, 
the technical service folks that you might be engaged with to make sure that, you know, whatever the herbicide treatment may be on a, on a piece of land that's going to be grazed for those covers that, you know, that's done carefully uh, and not to put animals into a health condition that might require, you know, some cost that could really undermine the, the efficacy of, of grazing those covers. So that's one of the challenges that we've seen, but it's certainly one that can be easily overcome with the right conversations, with the right planning, uh, and uh, we haven't seen that get in the way. Um, another one that I'll mention is, you know, there is some challenges often in terms of uh, just getting access to some of these covers. Um, and so we've seen some really important steps taken in terms of agreements between folks that have animals that might be willing to haul them and move them uh, to these covers and folks that, you know, are more than happy to have their covers grazed. And so we really have seen some some challenges that have come from that, but really some great ideas of how folks have worked together to set up a grazing agreements that, uh, whether it's across the fence line or down the road, that really is a win-win for that whoever's got that cropland and whoever might have those animals in terms of meeting both of their needs and doing that well. So that'd be one thing that I'd also mention is that just because it may not be land that someone has access to themselves, there's folks in their area that are often more than happy to work out agreements to uh, get animals onto that land. And before I stop talking on that topic, um, one thing that we've set up in conjunction with quite a few folks around the Midwest is the Midwest Grazing Exchange with the whole, and it's a free resource, folks can go to MidwestGrazingExchange.com, and that's where folks can put pins on a map to say that they have forage that's available in the form of uh, perennial or annual covers. And then there's folks that can put pins on there that say we have animals that we're willing to move. And then those folks can kind of match make with each other and they can work it out between themselves how they'd like to manage that. Um, because sometimes that's really uh, a gap in the opportunity is uh, folks with land but no animals and folks with animal but not enough land. Um, and we've seen a lot of those agreements work really well. What are some of the people who have the land Maybe they're on the Midwest Grazing Exchange. They say, we've got land, uh, come and graze. What kind of benefits are the landowners going to get from those animals grazing on their pastures? Well, I think it certainly depends on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the particular landowner. In the case of cropland, I think, again, the, the data is quite clear, is that there is some very significant benefits to the soil. And I think that they see the, the, the upsides to that. Um, and I think that there's often financial agreements that are reached in terms of those animals, you know, per head out on that acreage, um, whether it's daily or however they want to calculate that. Um, so that's a income, additional income for that uh, piece of, of land for that cropland owner. And for the, the folks that are moving the animals, I mean, a lot of times they're getting access to fairly low cost, uh, high quality forage in the time that they need it and that they'd like to, you know, get those animals out on that forage. And Churchill's mentioned just the benefit of that in terms of rate of gain and other uh, positive benefits as well. We've also found that some of those landowners that have cropland that are maybe on the exchange and want to work with folks, um, they're looking to transition a particular piece of land. Um, they might you know, want to take it out of crop production and, and, and increase their livestock operation. A lot of times it's multi-generational. You've got the Churchills on as a great example. We see a lot of multi-generational families where you know, a younger generation wants to start to run a herd. Uh, and so they use some of that contract grazing with someone in their community to uh, essentially try it out and help to figure out if it's going to work, figure out the infrastructure costs. And a lot of times the folks that are bringing those animals, 
they know what they're doing. You know, they know exactly the kind of infrastructure that's needed, the watering systems that are needed. The Churchills are a great wealth of information and could inform those cropland, uh, those those farmers to, you know, help them understand what it might look like to get perimeter fence in, get water systems in and kind of plan ahead. So there's a benefit there in that knowledge exchange. So Cameron and Devin, with your cattle operation, you supply several value-added opportunities to consumers across southern Indiana and even into Ohio. Uh, Can you talk a bit about that and what the end consumer product looks like for your farm? That's a great question. We actually have pivoted and we specialize in pasture finished and grass finished uh, beef these days, whichever nomenclature you prefer. They are all pasture raised, so all of our beeves are. Each farm is a little bit different depending on how far away it is, and we can have a more intensive grazing practice at some and less so at others. But that is something that not only that we practice as effective management day to day, but we actually use it as part of our marketing advantage. So it's something that we know consumers want to see more and more. Um, the more pasture, the better, the better uh, with the cattle that, that they choose to purchase for their own personal consumption. So it's something that certainly helped us gain customers and help us stand out because, quite frankly, there's still just not enough people who are utilizing the research out there uh, and the practices available to all of us with uh, the new technology in the, the polystrand wires and the uh, uh, increased um uh, effective ability of the solar chargers that we use to power our fencing. These are all things that a lot of people, if they haven't looked into it since the early 90s, the technology has changed. Our, bil- our abilities have changed and gotten better. Uh, so we're looking at a situation where it helps us and it helps the consumer realize their own consumption potential on feeling good about their purchase and so that it's not just anonymous Uh, from a feedlot in a state that they can't define or know. And on top of that, we really believe, and so do they, of course, overwhelmingly, that they're getting a healthier product. So we see there's new research with CLAs, uh, carbolinolinaic acids, if I can say that correctly, that that doesn't appear in feedlot cattle. They're fed grains. Uh, It's actually flushed out of their body. And uh, some of these things are found to be um, very beneficial So to the human diet and our immune system and overall health. So we're practicing something that not only is beneficial to our bottom line and it's beneficial to the soil and the pasture, but it's also beneficial to the customers. And on top of that, it's what they want to hear as we reach a, a future and a present that uh, involves customers being more well-read than ever in terms of their selection at the grocery store and locally. So you have anything to add, Cameron? I think you pretty well covered, Devin. That was very good. As we start to wrap up this conversation, I want to hear what words of advice would each of you give to someone who is interested in integrating livestock into cropland, whether it was from the viewpoint of a grain farmer who may be looking for livestock to integrate or somebody who raises livestock who wants to look for some extra grazing through the winter? I would say to them that uh, they must try it one way or another, uh, whether they own the cattle themselves and they crop on the side or, or whether they don't and the neighbor does. As mentioned before, 
and uh, elucidated well by Mr. Huff, the compaction is the only issue that really you can have besides the logistics of shade and water. If you have that covered, enough shade, and which isn't much of an issue in, late in the year as it is here, um, and as far north as Indiana and Wisconsin is, uh, but shade and water is your only issue besides compaction. And the compaction issue is overblown, assuming you have the ability to take the cattle off of that land that may not be well-drained. Uh, with the ability to move the cattle and the ability to look five days ahead in the weather, as we have now, uh, there's virtually no reason to not consider uh, putting the cattle on every acre of crop ground, even the highest risk, assuming that you can get them there on a dry date. So, um, and that may not be always possible with an exceptionally wet year, but I would advise that most people, most years, I would think that every acre of your crop ground can at least handle some grazing, even if it's just passing the cattle through, uh, even if they don't reside there for days or weeks on end. And the main benefit you're going to get is, of course, over and over again, we see the organic activity. And like Mr. Pete Huff mentioned uh, adroitly about the herbicide residue, uh, residuals that we see that affect uh, many, a compounding uh, list of things. There are so many things the cattle do that seem to rectify that. And there's quite a bit of research out there on that now. In some aspects, there's not enough research, but I think that they're shining a light more and more. And there's supposedly even a story of, of one crop farmer paying someone out west to bring their cattle a very small feed to actually increase um, uh, the microbial count uh, in their soils. So it, we may one day see it different where uh, the demand is going to be there. Instead of crop farmers being worried and reticent, they may one day embrace it, and we certainly hope so. We actually have a neighbor this year who just started harvesting, and we we are trying to gain the courage to go to him and talk to him about um, giving him money to, to run our cattle across his uh, cornfield it is this year. Um, so, And I think that uh, he's well-read enough and knowledgeable enough to know it would be beneficial and one day we may get to a point where neighbors just ask us to do us to do it regardless of price uh, is there anything you want to talk about camera i think you got it Devin. no and i may just chime in on that i thought that was excellent of course and you know the the takeaways that i would say you know from the from the research that we've done and the conversations that we've had with folks just harmonizes with what was shared is that really the benefits are there whether it's economic or from a soil health perspective the, we don't really bother to collect too much more data on this because the data that we've collected shows there's a benefit there and that's enough to get started. And so just to back up what Devin was saying is like getting started on some small degree and, and trying it for yourself makes a lot of sense. And there's, there's very, uh, there's, there's not that many risks in there and certainly not that many that can't be managed uh, carefully. You know, the other thing that I would just impress upon folks is to say that there's probably folks in your area that, have some experience with this and getting in and, and learning from those that are doing it and asking those questions, you know, one will will get that knowledge going and, and help you uh, overcome some of the, the learning curve that can come with this because we have seen in the data that there is a learning cur curve there and the more you do it, the better you are and the better you are, the more money you make per acre on this. Um, so learning from from those with experience is always good uh, and kind of um, doing that outreach and it also might lead to some business arrangements. Uh, we've also seen that it opens the door for 
the the kind of agreements that might allow uh, the kind of uh, um, grazing that, that the, the Churchill's just mentioned, where it could open up some of those uh, relationships. The other thing I would just say is that there's there's research that's out there. There's great resources that are out there on all this. I mean, all the rocks, a lot of the rocks have been turned over on how to do this really well from an infrastructure perspective, um, from a from a planning perspective. And so really just encouraging folks that are listening to take the time and read some of the materials that are out there. We certainly have uh, a how-to guide that we put together with some very knowledgeable folks on pastureproject.com um, and that uh, that folks can walk through on that. Uh, there's also great resources within the, um, sorry, that's pastureproject.org. I should get my own website correct. Um, and, but there's also great resources at the Practical Farmers of Iowa. And then, of course, a lot of the, uh, the universities that are out there, whether it's Missouri or Penn State or others, Nebraska, um, there's so many good resources that are out there. There's great videos online on YouTube and whatnot. Um, so in the age of information, just like Devin was mentioned, you know, the ability to look ahead, look ahead in the weather, the ability to, to move animals, and also the ability to just really access a lot of information about how to do this and do this really well, you know, on our phones or on our computers. We've never seen anything uh, as good as we've got it now. So just encourage that research. Um, and also just to share your learnings. Uh, I know there's a, there's a survey that's going around right now. Um, called Match Made in Heaven, which is about livestock and crop integration that's coming out of the University of Minnesota, their Greenlands Blue Waters outfit. And I think they're paying farmers to complete that survey. And that's for folks that have experience with this, folks that don't have experience with that. And we just encourage everyone to share what you're learning, however you're able to, because that's the only way we're going to move any further along is if folks um, talk a little bit about what worked and what didn't. So that'd be a few things that I might suggest. And I really appreciate you sharing your information with us here on that podcast and helping people think about um, maybe integrating some livestock into their own croplands or taking their livestock onto croplands around them. Before we end, I would like to ask for everybody's final thoughts. And um, Pete, I'm going to start with you. Well, I think final thoughts on this is just, first of all, appreciate... um... Devin and Cameron for what you shared. I certainly always learned a lot in hearing about how it's working for different operations. And I think final thoughts are much along the lines of, of what I just mentioned there and just encouraging folks to you know apply the same uh, experimentation and entrepreneurship uh, to figuring out how to make this work on their individual farm and operations. And we just encourage again, you know, working with folks across their fence lines because a lot of times there's opportunities uh, on our own operations, but there's also more opportunities across those fence lines and building relationships uh, with neighbors on how to make this work could really unlock the potential for for more livestock to be on more acres around the around the region. So. Um, but really appreciate the opportunity to to be on this with uh, the Churchills and, and learn, learn a little bit. Yes, thank you t- as well. Cameron, what do you think? What are your final thoughts? Well, a couple of things I would say is, one, if you're talking about uh, taking your livestock to a, a crop farmer, I would say for starters, try to do it close to a farm where you ha- where you live, the, your, your home operation. You don't want to be five, ten miles away from there when you're first one with the trial and error thing. I'd say try one and close and and also don't start too big. Start out small, experiment with it, and grow from there. Uh, don't don't go in it, you know, full speed ahead the first year. Test the waters and but keep it where it's that's what that's one of our biggest flaws here with us is our farms one of our farms is just a little farther away than we'd like. But uh, you know, the uh, the distance you've got to travel to check on your livestock can be a problem. So just 
when you when you're experimenting, keep it close. But and and don't just don't do too much at a time. Just start out small and go from there. I think that's well said, and I, it's hard to follow Mr. Huff because he spoke very well on it, it being willing to experiment and also reaching across the road and the fence line to our neighbors. I think that was just really well said and very important. And the most important thing is also, like he said a few comments back, all the research points to this being the right decision. So assuming you're not going to make a grave mistake with your management, with grazing, whether it's a sheep, small ruminants, or cattle, you can leave them out there too long. They can cause damage, uh, even with a moderate rain, if you have them in too small of an area. But we've seen that even though uh, something bad can happen, it does not happen with us just by simply troubleshooting certain things, such as making sure they have certain uh, a certain amount of area uh, per animal. Uh, we work outwards from the waters. Um, we make sure that if there's a deluge of rain, we don't have them in a place where they might destroy it too much. But we have only seen positive uh, results. And it's not it's like Mr. Huff said, the soil health uh, is extremely important to us because it's not just growing crops. It's also growing cover crops and pasture for us other times of the year. But to circle back around, it benefits the soil. It benefits the uh, pastures adjacent to the crop fields. But it also benefits the bottom line on uh, uh, our uh, bushel per acre. So we're actually increasing production as well. So that's my final thought is that there's really nothing that can go wrong, assuming that you have an open mind and you're willing to experiment. Uh, it's something that you've just got to take the plunge. And we just don't see enough people grazing their their crop fields with ruminants of any size. And it sh not only should it be done so as to capitalize on less waste, but you're going to see positive results. You're actually going to increase your output uh, in more than one way. Devin Churchill, farmer in Harrison County, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you all very much for having us. And his father, Cameron Churchill, he's also a farmer there in Harrison County. Uh, appreciate you joining Devin and sharing your family story. This has been our pleasure. Thank you. And then we had Pete Huff from the Wallace Center and the Pasture Project. Thanks for sharing your insights. Of course, it's been a pleasure to be with y'all. This has been a great podcast episode. I really appreciate your time and uh, this topic of integrating livestock with cropland. I know that if you're thinking about it, feel free to reach out to any of these gentlemen and they will be happy to uh, share their insights and share what they know. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us here on the Hat Soil Health Podcast. For Hoosier Ag Today, I'm Elise Koning. This episode of the Hoosier Ag Today Soil Health Podcast has been brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can learn more about their efforts and see a schedule of events at ccsin.org. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, create your riches below the surface with healthy soil.